from RTE Radio. I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. My journey as a writer is very simple, which is I didn't become a real writer in my head anyway until I started writing about where I'm from. You have to you have to prick it with a fork because it, ca- <laughs> it can explode. I'm not joking. I have had potatoes blow up in my face. The camera panned across the audience and as Eleanor put it, lingered on my face as if I'm a major, you know, a major part of the New York opera scene. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, a story of a drug feud fueled kidnapping in County Mayo, how to bake the perfect potato and Dara O'Brien goes to the opera. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that, well, is it just me? But, ah, just baked potatoes. Don't do anything for me. Let's start with Oliver Callan's monologue from this morning's uh, Oliver Callan. He began with a sad tale of weird male bonding. Now, it is also the time of year when people are preparing for weddings. And we found in the Irish section of the online messaging board Reddit um, a fella writing about his cousin. And he says... My cousin was just asked by a near stranger to be the best man for his wedding. And out of the old Irish politeness, my cousin said, yeah, sure, why not? So uh, he's going to be the best man uh, for someone who's basically just a kind of a drinking friend, someone he only knows from the weekends, as is described here on Reddit. Um, this fella, he's met his man, this man only a maximum 20 times, I'd say, for an hour or two over their life together so far. Two to three sessions on the beer, just in the evening time. So about 20 meetings. His missus is in the wedding party. Uh, I only know this because he's admitted that he's never had a conversation alone with this fella that he's now going to be the best man for. He has no stories about him. He's never met his mother, his father, his brothers. He doesn't know any of their names. He's never drank in the same place that he's from. He was not at school with them. They have no mutual friends. They don't have any other connection other than this kind of weekend banter in a group and the two girlfriends are quite close. He says it's going to be quite a speech and he um, is very excited for what's going to happen, about how bad it's all going to go, essentially. And he's to plan a stag for a group of literal strangers. But feck it, at least he'll get a free pair of shoes and a bite to eat, is the message there. I would imagine this kind of typical of of Irish men who don't have extremely close friends, or maybe they're not, they've never had a um, close, meaningful conversation, you know, intimate, the, the, the absolute chats may not have gone on. Slightly kind of sad as well. Sad is the word, really, isn't it? Meanwhile, if you've asked yourself many times, as I have, who the world's most important lesbian is, Oliver has you covered. Now, Gen Z and the uh, habits of Gen Z employees come up all the time. And this uh, employee has sparked a furious debate after telling their boss that they, we can't, I'm sorry, I cannot go to that eight o'clock meeting that you've scheduled. I'm not able to go to it because it clashes with my gym workout class. And so uh, it has ignited a fiery conversation as people have argued back and forth about work-life balance and whether the Gen Z employee was right to say, no, I normally start at nine, I'm not doing the eight o'clock meeting. They could have just chatted and said, does this mean I stop at four and so on. And this reminds us of Jodie Foster, currently star of True Detective, Night Country and also nominated for an Oscar this year for the first time in 29 years. She said uh, earlier uh, that uh, this month that Gen Z is very annoying, especially in the workplace. And uh, she said, um, they're like, nah, I'm not feeling it today. I think I'll just come in around half ten. Or in emails, she has come back to them and said, this is all grammatically incorrect, your email. Did you not check your spelling before you sent this to me? And they're like, why would I do that? Isn't that kind of limiting? But they can't say anything bad about Jodie Foster. I mean, she is she is probably the greatest lesbian in the world, isn't she? She is the best. Like, if you're in the lesbian community, you're going, Jodie Foster, thank God, she's the queen of us. And she is incredible. 
in a True Detective Night Country. So if you're watching, it was out, it's out on Mondays. So there you go. Jodie Foster, you can't argue with that, can you? There's some sporting competition starting tonight, apparently, and in honour of it, Oliver totally destroys the whole notion of a morning monologue. Right now in the world, the most important thing for us is that there are busloads of, I suppose you could call them military-aged, unvetted men heading for hotels in a small town known as Marseille. That's right. It's exactly what you were thinking. Good morning to all the uh, Irish rugby fans dressed in green jerseys that haven't fit them since 2002 or thereabouts, heading from the airport for the start of the Six Nations tonight. Allez, les garçons en vert, the boys in green, because tonight does see the biggest night in Irish rugby, I suppose, since that horror against the All Blacks in the World Cup last October. So the Six Nations is back and uh, the champions begin our defence in Marseille. We're up against France. Les Bleus are at home and into the Johnny Sexton-shaped chasm goes uh, one Jack Crowley who'll be wearing number 10 tonight. It's not in Paris, obviously, because the stadiums are given over to the preparations for the Olympics this summer. So it's going to be a very unique occasion because the Irish rugby fans are making their way to the south of France on this hugely, hugely important clash. Now, the main... Irish bar in Marseille if you're heading down there is O'Brady's it's nice and quiet there at the moment because it's only 10 past 10 or coming up to quarter past 10 in Marseille so let's say hello to the French innkeeper who's on duty today he's been working at the bar since the 90s I believe so I've seen plenty of Irish fans over the years Emmanuel Defois or Efois Emmanuel good morning to you bonjour bonjour hi Oliver how are you very well nous sommes très excités (laughs) that's all I have we 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 are we are well excited too, and I hear uh, congratulations are in order for your new show. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. So You're tell welcome. me, tell me, um, moving swiftly on from that, have you seen any Irish rugby fans about already? Maybe last night or in the city this morning? I wasn't here myself last night, but uh-huh. uh, but the 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 lads do tell me uh, there were quite a few um, uh, last night in the pub. Uh, there's one of them called me this morning because he he, he lost his wallet. Oh, very good. <laughs> the party has begun. <laughs> but he but he found it. Yeah, yeah. The party bits has of them begun. are already yeah. falling off. <laughs> but the party's begun in O'Brady's. Excuse me, I didn't hear that. Sorry, the party has begun, and sadly, you probably have to expect more of people losing wallets. And... Oh yeah, to, yeah. Today, today is going to be a, a little bit mad. We we open at uh, eleven in the morning uh, every day, as yes. in, uh, uh, under an hour, and uh, we're going to do food nonstop, especially today and oh, thank tomorrow. God. Yes, for, very important uh, for for the Irish fans who we expect are going to come to see the the two other games tomorrow afternoon as well. It's a big, big occasion. Fill them full of carbs, Manu. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, Fish and chips and, uh, and homemade burgers. Oh, beautiful. Uh, what's the weather like there at the moment? Is it, is it chilly in Marseille or is it starting um, to warm up? It's a bit chilly for for us. Yes. For us, Marseille, but uh, it's going to be okay, like 10, 12 degrees. It's uh, it's sunny. No wind today, uh, fortunately. It was sunny, 12 degrees. Today. Oh, there'll be fellas shirtless at this time of the year, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the weather is fine. You've been working there for yeah. years and years, I believe. Yeah, I've been working uh, since uh, the start of uh, of O'Brady's in '96. 
Yes. I started uh, exactly two weeks after the after the opening, and uh, we're the first Irish pub in Marseille. Brilliant. Ninety-six. Your career, a barman. So, which is always good to hear. Yeah, barman, manager, and now I'm like a, what you call it, director, admin, and uh, I uh, I do uh, I do lunch service on the floor as well. Oh, we and, should use that term in pubs in Ireland as well, directors. Make yeah. people sit upright. Uh, have you come across Irish fans often? Because in Marseille, what's the stadium there? The Velodrome, is it? Wouldn't be. Yeah. 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 Because obviously, our rugby, Irish rugby matches, international matches will be up in Paris. But I presume Leinster and Munster fans have played Toulon down there on occasion. Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, Velodrome hosted uh, a few uh, a few European rugby games, and uh, we we had a. Uh, we had a final a few years back uh, with uh, Leinster Munster. Uh, nice. It was in uh, 2014, uh, I think. Uh, That's ten years so, ago. Yeah, now. quite yeah, a few, quite a few Irish fans uh, throughout the years, and uh, we didn't have uh, any Irish uh, during the World Cup, unfortunately. But uh, we did have uh, uh, a few others: Australian, uh, New England Zealand, played down England, there for sure. Yeah. But everyone behaved yeah. themselves beautifully at the Rugby World Cup. Um, is, oh, absolutely. absolutely! It's a proper, it's a proper it's a, Irish international pub. International rugby is always uh, is always uh, gentlemen uh, fans. Of course not. That's Manu Efroy of O'Brady's Irish Bar in Marseille, ending our delve into this morning's Oliver Callum monologue. Calls have been made for the government to act urgently to address a shortage of taxis across the country. This morning, Colm O'Mungan, sitting in for Claire Byrne, spoke to Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard and Jim Waldron from the National Private Hire and Taxi Association. The conversation started with Tim Lombard talking about a meeting in Leinster House during the week with the Taxis for Ireland Coalition. Yeah, this is a forum that I held last uh, Wednesday at three o'clock in Leinster House, where I had representatives there from the um, Restaurant Association of Ireland, um, Vintner Association, Vintners Federation, and also the tourism industry, and also with representatives there from the ta- from the taxis as well. We have a huge shortage of taxis in certain locations, and I think there's been a dramatic fall off in licences over the last few years. And because of that, the issue about trying to get home at night or home at peak times becomes a huge issue. Um, the majority of our taxis are based around the Dublin area. I think 60% of our taxis are based in Dublin, with the population around that area just around 30%. So you have a huge cluster of taxis in Dublin. But the issue then is when you go into more rural areas, the taxis just aren't there. And it's not just rural areas, it's rural towns as well. Um, I spoke to a woman yesterday who told me that if she was to get a taxi at a town called Clonakilty, a beautiful place down West Cork, she'd have to book it three weeks in advance for a Saturday night. Like, that isn't a natural service. So we need to make sure that we actually work to change the actual regulations with the NTA so we have a more uh, competent service that serves all people. All right. And did you get any insight in that meeting as to what's putting people off serving those areas? Is it just that the population's not there to sustain them being on standby 
or are there other issues? There's several issues. I think some of it is to do with the actual regulations that the NTA have regarding driving taxi. I think one is the geography-based test. Um, less than 32% of people actually pass it first time round. This is basically a test that you have to work out to work out the geography of your location where you're working. So if you're in Cork, it literally is from Yall down to our groom, which is literally hundreds of miles long. To know all locations is practically impossible. So we need to work with the technology that we have, which is Obviously, the actual um, technology like maps and everything else that's a part of our phones that can be a part of how we can um, find a way around. But there's also a huge issue regarding the actual cost to get into the sector itself. If you're a new entrant since 2014, <coughs> you'd have to go down the scenario of getting a wheelchair accessible taxi. One of the quotations that I got from a lady in Bantry who has her licence and she will not get into the actual system itself because it costs her too much was €72,000 to buy the actual taxi itself. So that would be for a part-time scenario because, as she said herself, taxis in Bantry would be only in the summertime and maybe some work at the winter. At the moment, there's no taxi in Bantry any day after 7 o'clock in the evening. All right. Um, Jim Waldron from the National Private Hire and Taxi Association. You've heard some of the concerns that Tim Lombard has laid out there. There are taxis, he says, they're in the wrong place and the entry point uh, is too expensive. But to deal with the first issue first, why are taxis not better spread around the country where it appears people need them? Well, taxis are very spread in the country, you know. They, they go towards where the work is. Uh, you know, you're not going to sit around all day waiting on one particular job. Uh, the National Transport Authority tried to address that very recently and they introduced the local area hackney and they're actually paying people uh, €6,000 over a 12-month period so long as they can prove that that taxi um, uh, enhanced the, the community. Now, that's an option for anybody in Ireland to use at the moment. And uh, it would restrict them probably to their local area, which is exactly what uh, the centre is asking for. So that can be addressed. Uh, the the centre is in bed with tech companies now, app companies, uh, and, and it would appear Uber have influenced the, the manifesto of uh, the Fine Gael party in the past. And basically what they're trying to do is destroy a taxi industry. Okay. Destroy a taxi and okay, well, there, there are some serious charges there, uh, Jim Waldron. Tim Lombard, what do you say to that, that you've been influenced by uh, large technology transport platforms and uh, you, you don't have the best interests of the taxi industry in mind? The first thing is the scheme that you mentioned was that there's only been one applicant actually for that scheme itself. This is, this is the Hackney, the local yeah, Hackney yeah. scheme that's so, supported but with, the, with, a, with, a, with a grant of €6,000 yeah. a year. So this grant of €6,000 a year has been paid to one actual Hackney up in North Cork. It was so limited, the uptake was actually terrible. You can only imagine we have a huge issue here, but only one actual applicant actually took it up. And I'm still not aware whether that actually Hackney's running. All right, well, you're from a government so, party, Tim. Could that be improved? I so, mean, are, are you lobbying inside of government instead of looking at, at, at the regulations. So I've met the NTA, I've spoken to the government about this, I've spoken to the pub- public, but we're not in a scenario here that we're just being influenced by one tech company here. This is Well, no, just to deal, the with, you deal with oh, the question about the, about the Hackney first. I mean, what response did you get about improving the terms and conditions for that? So when I met the NTA about this about three months ago um, at a meeting, they literally have no major plan to actually change the system itself. They know it's broken. They know it's not working. They know there's no actual taxi service in rural Ireland. But we, they've no 
view that they're going to change it dramatically. And that's the big issue. Okay. We need well, to have dramatic change in policy. And unless we get that dramatic change in policy, there'll be no major uptake. And the, we have a huge issue. And in particular, I think when you look at the federation are brought together, the tourism industry in particular has been grossly affected by the lack of taxis, in particular in my part of the world. Okay. And oh, just to deal with the other point uh, that Jim Waldron makes, his fear is, is that you're somehow cheerleading on behalf of technology transport platform, booking platforms uh, like Uber. How do you answer that? I don't think I'm cheerleading for anyone. I think I'm cheerleading for the general public for the lack of actual transportation links that are out there. Uber could be a part of the solution. Bowl could be a part of the solution. Jim's organisation could be a part of the solution. But what's actually wrong but with we the but the big issue here is that we did, do... Did, did, did you invite them, uh, Tim Lombard? So when I got this coalition together, the actual cohort that I had involved from the Federation of Taxis was the two actual entities itself because they were very much involved in trying to find a solution towards this problem itself. And that's what I'm trying to do, is trying to find a solution and start the debate. The first thing that we need to agree here is that we have a problem. And I think that's what I'd like Jim to admit today, that we have a problem. And because we have a problem, we need change. OK, I just got to come back to that. I just want to ask you, though, um, Tim Lombard, how would changing the provider or involving more providers matter if with a €6,000 grant at the moment, people are not serving areas where there appears, as you say, to be demand? So the demand that we have in our areas can be served in many ways by nothing more, nothing less than a part-time service that's going to work on weekends and nights because there's no real action in our part of the world when you look at daytime trade. Okay. All right. And that is where the actual regulation needs to change to bring more people into it. And we need to make sure everyone that's involved in it is Garda vetted. Like I'm involved in my local hurling team, I'm Garda vetted. My wife's involved in a play group, she's Garda vetted. We, need, we cannot change the standards, but we need to make it more accessible for pe- pe- people to get involved okay. in the industry. That's Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard and Jim Waldron from the National Private Hire and Taxi Association talking to Colm O'Mungon this morning about solutions for the taxi shortage in many parts of the country. The bold Dara O'Brien was on the line to Ray Darcy from the US of A. So, so you're touring the states. I'm in America. Yeah, I'm doing Washington DC tonight. Right. The, um, uh, this is very much the uh, little gift to myself at the end of a long tour. The uh, because uh, it's you know you, this this it's, it's inherently exciting to play New York or Washington or whatever in a way that say playing Woking or Dorking or <laughs> you know Seven Oaks might not be that exciting, but is the job. This is a bit which is a fun bit, and you do this for the sake of just the pleasure of going. Hello, Broadway. <laughs> Uh, and, hello you New know, York like, yeah. yeah did yeah, you actually yeah, did you night. say hello New York did you oh I said I said hello Broadway oh, I absolutely right, went right, right. yeah look you get your chance to do it once in each tour you're absolutely going for it yeah. there's a theatre called the Town Hall uh, in New York that after the gig the, owner, the guy who runs the company said oh do you know much about the history of the place I said I don't he said well this is where Aretha Franklin did her first wow. show and where Leonard Cohen did it and then wow. going never tell me this <laughs> <laughs> well look he didn't I, tell I, you before you went on Oh my God, there's a killed me. Yeah. You know, the level of the sheer level of competence and genuine talent yeah. uh, that I was falling off for. But no, we did we did a fantastic night there. So the uh, and then a couple of nights in Chicago as well in a, in a kind of a club type thing, which is great fun. But what's really striking actually is far fewer Irish than people presume. The uh, it's uh, it's really quite interesting. The uh, that I think the young Irish aren't coming here anymore. They're all in Toronto and Vancouver, you know, because you see them after the gig there, but. 
it's really yeah the visas have really tightened up here like the yeah, so it's, okay. uh, it's been very so, yeah so who is going and how do you change your material to suit that audience well, interestingly, a lot of Americans, because things like Taskmaster are, are freely available ah, yes, in America. Yes. So I'll do, like in both nights in Chicago, there were, there were guys in front row with my face on T-shirts that they had made right. of various things I'd done on Taskmaster. Yeah. The, uh, including one very recent one of me you know, in a wig. I wore a wig on a Taskmaster thing um, uh, recently. And uh, the guy, had a, and I didn't even recognise myself on it, like whatever. So, so there's a lot of comedy nerds will note from, from that kind of stuff, like with yeah. the yeah, uh, which is in many ways with the best world of the Irish. You know, it's great and it's really, really good the way they, they'll come out. And uh, uh, and big thanks by the way to the Irish. Uh, the you know the embassies and consuls here are very good at just putting the word out to the community and all that. Here it's great, the, but the uh, but it's kind of even more fun to try doing the stuff in front of Americans because there's things they don't do here. For example, they don't do two hour long shows <laughs> like we do in Vicar Street. There, like the guy at the end of the, of the Chicago said, that is the first intermission we've ever had. <laughs> In the history of the comedy club, you're going, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they just do 60 minutes here. They don't, they don't do 60 minutes and then go, take a drink, I'll be back in a minute. I'll give you another, another hour when did, when did that creep in? I don't know if I like the, the, the intermission at all at a comedy gig. Uh, well, we've always had it because, you know, theatres need to, you know, that's oh, yeah, their economic yeah. model. They need to sell booze, like whatever, right. and they need to ice cream and stuff like that. So, so there's always been a thing. But, like, we, I think there's a tendency, I don't know, maybe it's me, maybe I'm just this Victorian era a, a thing, whatever, to do, like, the full show, to do the first half and the second half and all that. Whereas now it's gone very, in America, and now because of Netflix and all, it's gone very 60-minute specials. I th- who is it who said a short show is a good show? Oh, that, yeah, my wife. My wife who constantly <laughs> says that. The, uh, as you reminded to me, that is her literally, a short show is a good show. When so, was yeah, the last time no. your wife saw your show? She saw it, oh, she saw it during the tour once or twice. I'm trying to remember when the last time whether right. she saw it in London or whether she came over, I think maybe to see it in somewhere unusual, like Cork or something like that, the, uh, that she came over to see it, like whatever. So she saw, she's seen versus, uh, she's seen it. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and is there mm-hmm. constructive criticism or the, any comment? Well, yeah, no, just, no, I mean, there is a, t- a tendency that, as I would go, then my wife said, and I, I like I've, I've met her, she, I've, when she's come in after seeing one of the shows and went, I don't remember saying all that. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> Yeah. You, you didn't but you know <laughs> I need somebody to do in the story and you just fit perfectly so yeah, yeah. Uh, so how do you how do you fill your days because I know when you're obviously say if you're doing a run in Vicar Street you have, you have friends and, and family and relations in Dublin you can meet them for a cup of tea in the middle yeah. of the day all that sort of thing but what do you do when you're in Chicago or New York or Washington as oh, you I, are I, now I, I tour I it up I, like I do stuff I have I kind of make a point of doing stuff so I get tickets to you know basketball matches or I go to museums or I do like I try to tick off a list of things you know to actually the the finest one was the um, uh, when I was in New York just I just on the off chance at eight in the morning I clicked on the website for the Met which right. is the big opera house yeah the, uh, and there was one seat at the end of a row uh, for Carmen which is on that afternoon I went I've got to go see Carmen so uh, so I bought a ticket for Carmen went arrived at the theatre very excited I get very giddy about attending things I 
was over 10 degrees. <laughs> uh, and, but there was a cameraman with a full camera right beside me blocking the view. And I said, oh, well, that's a little disappointing. And the guy, and then the guy turned and said, no, no, you can just go and complain. If you go and complain about your seat, it's me being here, they'll give you a different seat. Okay. So I went and complained, as the man said, and they put me in the seat right in the middle of the stalls. And I was feeling delighted with that. Wonderful show. And then at the interval, I opened my phone up and there were 40 tweets from all across the UK and Ireland, including from Eleanor McAvoy, right. saying, what are you doing at Carmen in New York? <laughs> because the camera panned across the audience and as Eleanor put it, lingered on my face as if I'm a major, you know, a major part of the New York opera scene. And I said that, and like, I look happy with myself at the best of times. So I can only imagine how unbelievably smug I looked sitting in the middle of the stalls watching Carmen. It was one of those things, was it, that they, you know, they do it live yeah, for cinemas. cinemas. Oh, yeah. the cinemas right, globe, yeah. like whatever. And then in the middle of it, and it was perfectly timed for the UK and Ireland. And that's like why it was on in the, the afternoon. afternoon. I was thinking, why would a big production like, like you know, I'm with cameras yeah, exactly. in the afternoon. So it was yeah. on afternoon in New York for, for global for global broadcast across ah, Europe. Yeah. And all of the cinemas, and I was getting them from ba- from Belfast, from Bath, from Bath, <laughs> Bath, going, what are you doing <laughs> The Very Cultured Dara O'Brien talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. A drugs feud kidnapping thriller set in County Mayo. That's how Oliver Callan introduced the new novel from the award-winning writer Colin Barrett. The book is called Wild Houses and Oliver wondered if Colin had come up with that term himself. Because it feels like something I've heard of but I can't kind of quite place yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. I've been asked that a few times. Did you did I invent this yeah. title or this term "wild houses," which appears in the book a couple of times? And uh, the answer is I don't know. I can't remember. I feel like someone said it to me once. You know, mm. back in my adolescence at some point in Mayo. But the people and, up uh, there in those wild houses. something was described as a wild house. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a very um, wherever it came from, it's a very resonant term. I think. Yeah, and. Uh, it uh, it kind of as as happens. I wrote the book and I didn't have a title yet, but that 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 phrase had cropped up a couple of times in it. So that ended up being the title. And uh, it yeah. I but I can't I can't be sure I came up with it. And I, I certainly they, won't say I did. They say session gaffs. I think in Dublin. Session gaff is a good example, and certainly that's that's the meaning of it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a you know it's a house of with a certain notoriety attached to it. So in small small towns or whatever or anywhere, houses you know. of iniquities. House of Iniquity. Yeah. <laughs> Where did the teenage drinking happen when you were growing up? Oh my God! Um, oh yeah, yeah. The teenage drinking. Yeah, there was a little bit of it, and uh, no, there'd be a little bit of it in houses if someone's parents were away. Or um, mm. we were very sad, myself and my friends, because we. I went to an old boys' school, and uh, God, when we would go for a little bit of. Uh, yeah, drinking, teenage drinking at the weekends. We would go back to school. We'd go onto the school grounds oh, really? and drink, <laughs> giving it away now. Back to but, school. Um, you know, so that was the, that was as far as our imagination went when Friday night came around and we had procured a can or two. Uh, and we where will we go? We'll go to the school grounds, yeah, and drink, so. The Dubliners don't realise how privileged they were that they did have session gaffs and wild houses to go to. Yeah. But the country upbringing was, was different, wasn't it? There wasn't... It was always a, you had to kind of well the schoolyard now is unusual. That's that's very unusual. That's very sad. I think <laughs> um, there are cooler kids out there. I think uh, in the countryside. But um, uh, yeah, I mean that's sort of a theme of the book. You know, it's it's uh, it's set it's set in Ballina, in and around Ballina and stuff. And so I wanted to capture that sense of uh, you know there's a lot of teenage characters in it and a lot of young people and um, that sort of sense of um, uh, you know what would you call it? You just sort of this sort of 
you can kind of go between the cracks of things, you know. There's lots of empty space out there. There's lots of, there's the town and then there's lots of, there's the wilderness, there's the wilderness out around you. And houses play a very important role in the house. Dev, one of the main characters, lives lives alone. He's a young man in his 20s. He lives alone out, out in, in the middle of nowhere, basically. And uh, This is Dev. Dev, yeah. He's, he's one of the main characters. And um, as you said, it's about a kidnapping, the book. And uh, so Dev is the house to whom the kidnapped teenage boy doll is brought. Um, and so we see events of fall from Dev's perspective. He kind of is an unwitting accomplice to this kidnapping. And uh, so I just wanted to capture that energy. I just wanted to feed that in, that sense of Dev, Dev lives out. He's not too far geographically from civilization, from Ballina, from, yeah. from the towns, but uh, emotionally and subjectively, I just remember this feeling as a kid driving around in the, the countryside, whether it's with your friends or just, you know, in an idle afternoon or whatever, or indeed with your parents or whatever, just always seeming, may all seemed endless. You'd always see, you'd go around a corner and there'd be some house or some, you know, uh, field you hadn't, it feel, felt like you'd never seen before, encountered before, you know. Right. So there's a strange sense of, of, of openness. And so... The empty a, space. The empty sure. space. And there can be a bit of menace with that and a bit of, you know, so, so this is a very simple setup. A, 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 a young man is kidnapped. He's not brought very far, but he's brought out to this house in the middle of nowhere and no one can find him. Um, is it hard to write about ho- your home place? Do you, do you sense yourself along the way? Um, my journey as a writer is very simple, which is I didn't become a real writer in my head anyway until I started writing about where I'm from. Mm-hmm. I, I've always written fiction. It's always been fictionalised. It is always made up. But until I started writing out of my own experiences, out of my formative experiences as a child and, and writing about the West and writing about the people I grew up among, my writing wasn't very substantial up until then. So it's absolutely key, yeah, to write about where I'm from. And uh, once once I started doing that, the writing the writing felt real and, 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 and had a weight to it. And um, I was, of course, always worried. What, what held me back was how is everyone <laughs> going to take this yeah, in yeah, yeah. where I'm from when they start reading these stories and now novels about, yeah, I mean, there's some sensational stuff in there and, and you know, violence and, and all that. But I, I am, people have been very nice about the books uh, over the years in, in Mayo and elsewhere and they get it. They get what you're going at and you're showing the place. I love where I'm from. Uh, I love my home. I love my hometown. I, I love my, my county and uh, I love where I'm from and I love the people. And um, but I, you know, I've always tried to show them honestly. And it's just my, it's just my, you know, I'm writing out of my own experiences. I'm not an authority, but I want to show them in all their sort of rough, hewn beauty, the same as the landscape. And uh, thankfully, they have not chased me out of the place yet. Yeah. You love the place, but you're saying it's not. There's empty spaces. Not everything is perfect. That's a good rounded view. It's the most rounded view of Mayo. Well, you know, yeah. Heard. I mean, it is. There's an untamed element to it. As I say, there is a kind of wildness. It's a wilderness still. You know, we live in a very. Uh, you know, you think there's no wild places left, but uh, there still is. Yeah. Because nearly every character in this, they're stuck in a way. It, yeah. Is that how you see the West of Ireland? Not at all. I don't know how I see the West of Ireland. I, I suppose I, I was someone who grew up and left for college. You know, I haven't lived in Mayo. In I grew up there, but I haven't lived there in well over 20 years. Mm. And it's not an untypical anyone who grows up out in the countryside and inevitably a lot of people move away. Uh, and so all my all my writing has kind of been about the opposite. I, I write about people who who maybe stay or people, you know, who are, who've always been my age or whatever, or roughly my age and what their lives are like there, you know, and it's not it's not a judgmental thing or it's not saying, well, this is I'm delighted I got away or anything like that. It's a, it's a lot more complicated. And and when I left, I couldn't wait to leave. I was a restless teenager with pretensions and I wanted to go off and write my books um, in a cosmopolitan place like 
Dublin <laughs> or, or wherever, but um, or you know uh, London or somewhere. But uh, I never made it that far. But uh, when as soon as I left, I missed lots of it. And you know, and and as you get older, you really value what's there. And I love going back when I can. So I've always wanted to sort of get that love in there, but also also the difficulties and stuff. And so writing about stuckness, writing about characters. Maybe it's me writing about a fate I was always worried I'd have. But I I think I'm also writing about things I didn't get, things I missed, consolations and, and things that I that I didn't get because I left. Is that why people leave the fear that this is the life that you might have? That could be it, you know. Um, Which is fine for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a function of when you're youngish, you just want to get out and see new, the world, really. I mean, that's a very simple thing. It's hard to appreciate what you have there. It's uh, what's right in front of you because you grew up with it, you know. And, right. and, 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 and that's sort of like there's several phrases to that end in the book, you know, the, the, the Dev and, um, you know, he, he doesn't see what's in front of him um, and, and a lot of the characters don't. So they are in, I mean, you know, it's about a kidnapping and it's, it's at times a very intense story and, and whatnot. But um, hopefully there's a lot of, anyone who reads it will see that there is a, there is a lot of, um, there's community in there and there's a lot of lost characters, but there are, there is opportunities for them. Like Dev's struggle is he doesn't need to be alone. He's, he's kind of removed himself from society after a family tragedy. But, um, you know, there are people out there for him um, if, he's, if he's willing to sort of extend himself and reach out. The two guys who come to his door, they're obviously involved in the drugs industry. Um, explain the relationship because he's, he's the tallest, isn't he? But he's, He's not really scared of them. They they bring the kidnapped boy. Yeah. And they're using his house. And he tiptoes around. But the, the, I I was struck by that kind of Irish relationship in some <laughs> ways that he, yeah. you know, that he's friends with them, but not friends. Yeah, it's a very, you know, it's dramatic. It's, it's very dramatically depicted here because there's, there's a drug deal and there's a kidnapping and all that. But absolutely what I wanted to capture was a feeling I had a lot when I grew up and I would be... Um, you know, when you go out in the countryside, you're just friends with whoever's around. So you'd often be friends with younger kids and older kids, you know. And so these hierarchies would naturally form. You know, you'd be, I'd be with my older cousins who I thought were impossibly glamorous and, and cool um, and reckless. And, um, you know, you wanted to emulate them. And the dynamics would often be very strange. I, I, they were your friends or they'd have a lot of time for you and tolerate you. But every so often they'd just pick on you or do something very casually cruel to you, you know. And it's a very just... Every child does it, you know. Um, so those, those sort of, um, I wanted to capture that dynamic. I mean, the whole plot is a, is a excuse in a sense to get Dev, who's this gentle giant, basically. He's, he, he wouldn't harm anybody, but he's, he's not really scared of the Ferdias. They're disreputable people. They're criminals. They're drug dealers. They would have very bad reputations around the town. But they're his cousins. And they actually, you know, they're not a threat to him. Um, but they also have this young fellow with them. So it's this sort of, they become this sort of family over for the course of the book, this, this four-man family. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a goodie. That's Colin Barrett talking to Oliver Callan this morning about his new novel, Wild Houses, which is published by Jonathan Cape. Some research has shown that one in four people can experience regular suspicious thoughts, and almost all of us experience paranoia at some stage in our lives. On this morning's Today programme, Colm O'Mungon spoke to Professor Daniel Freeman, clinical psychologist at the University of Oxford, about paranoia, what it is and how to treat it. We use the term in many different ways, but uh, when we refer to it in mental health, what we're talking about is fearing that others are trying to harm us in some way when they aren't. So we might fear, for example, that someone's deliberately spreading nasty rumours about us 
or that they're trying to distress us, or even that they might physically harm us. And in terms of uh, the problematic aspects of it, people might have fleeting thoughts. In other cases, it might be deep-seated. When should people be worried if they feel this consistently? Yeah, so all of us have to think about when to trust or mistrust other people because there are real dangers in the world. So we're always making those kind of evaluations, but sometimes we can get it wrong because it is hard to read other people's intentions. But when it tends to become a problem is when we believe the thoughts too much, we think about them too much, and it affects our behavior. So most typically, people start to avoid other people, other situations, and retreat from the world to a degree because of their fears. Um, And particularly, that's a problem when the fears are wrong or inaccurate or unfounded. Now, some people's fears, you know, what what they focus on might be unfounded in that specific instance. But do people who suffer from it a lot, have they experienced harm in other areas of their, their life that make them vulnerable to these kind of thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that happens. So if people have treated you badly, it does two things. It makes you feel vulnerable, but it also uh, makes quite prominent in your mind that others can be uh, bad towards you. Um, and one of the lingering effects of being treated very badly by other people is that your judgments tend to be skewed towards mistrustful. And that's very understandable. The question is when it gets out of hand. So sometimes we, we talk about the dose makes the poison, that sometimes mistrust is helpful, but if we have too much of it, uh, that can cause uh, problems for a person. And to what degree is it an individual issue? And in, in what cases maybe could it be a mass phenomenon? Yeah, it's both, I think. So I work as a clinical psychologist with people uh, at an individual level who've got very strong paranoid thoughts. Um, But levels of trust and mistrust in society are really important and they're affected by societal factors. For me, I think trust is a vital but invisible national infrastructure that we need to pay attention towards. Um, But that's undermined when we have societies that are Uh, more unequal or unfair, um, there's more social disunion, for example, Uh, that can eat away at levels of trust in society. And, you know, a healthier society tends to have higher levels of trust within it. And public debate, how does that influence it? Because we have seen in the past, you know, politics being debated on the basis of wedge issues, algorithms being used to feed people uh, uh, information about their pet peeves, is the sort of information infrastructure we have at the moment more conducive to worsening the problem? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. I think you've got sort of attacks on the nature of facts themselves, and then you've got a whole lot of misinformation uh, spread on the internet. And I think what we've certainly seen uh, that some of the consequences of that, for example, is that a particular variant of mistrust, conspiracy beliefs, have gone much more mainstream than ever before, partly down to those sorts of factors. So you have this paradoxical situation where the misinformation that's spread online about particular groups, in some cases minority groups, putting out the, the, the false narrative that they mean harm to another population, in fact then gives rise to a legitimate feeling of fear on behalf of those minority groups? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, mistrust, I think, is an invisible corrosive that eats away individuals' relationships in society. And we really need to value trust and pay huge attention to, to it. And coming back to then the individual experience of it, um, Daniel, 
when people feel these uh, thoughts of paranoia coming on before it, I suppose, reaches uh, the stage of seeking clinical help, are there skills they can put into practice in order to check some of those doubts and maybe test them against evidence? Yeah, undoubtedly, there's lots we've learned about paranoia over the last couple of decades and about how to overcome it. Um, There are some basics that actually we feel better when we're sleeping well, we feel better when our self-confidence is increased, and we also tend to feel better when we spend less time worrying and ruminating on our own. Um, And then the key thing really is to, rather than get caught up in fearful thoughts, is actually to test out really them in the real world to actually go back to situations that are likely to be safe and experience that feeling of safety in you repeatedly. So it's always best to try and avoid avoidance because that's when we often get caught up in our thoughts. When we actually isolate ourselves, we spend more time with fears going around our heads um, and um, we have less chance to find out actually there are people in the world where we feel safe and we can trust. So friends, basically, if at all possible, go to a trusted friend and, and have a frank discussion. Is that it? Or, or try and at least yeah. maintain yeah. a social life, even if that feels challenging or wrong, given the thoughts you're having. I think you're right. I think it's, it's often we get too stuck in thoughts going around our own heads and actually just saying them out loud makes a difference. And of course, uh, having the advice of someone we, we feel close to and trust can be enormously helpful. And then also... What's crucial to our psychological health across the board, really, is getting on doing activity that's meaningful for us, because all of us are happier uh, when we're doing things that matter to us. And talk to me about self-medication, because in your book, you open up quite an interesting chapter about, you know, why I'm giving up tobacco. You actually is the title of the chapter, but it gets into uh, Napoleon's observation of the effects of hashish on his troops and how that came back to France. Uh, and uh, the, the, the effects that were noted in the early introduction of cannabis into Europe. But it, it opens a chapter, I suppose, on the effects of tobacco, cannabis, alcohol, uh, and how those things interact with people's sense of well-being and paranoia. Yeah, that's right. So there are, there are multiple causes of paranoia, and generally people need a number of things for those to come together to create it. But cannabis, for example, is one of the contributory causal factors or can be. And that really depends on three main things, really. Certainly, the amount of cannabis that's consumed. Um, Secondly, the age of exposure to it and and the earlier you take it and the more you take it, uh, the more likely you might have some difficulties from it. But also, it matters about exactly what it is uh, that you're taking because the concentration of a particular key ingredient, THC, can vary greatly but can Uh, cause some of the more harmful effects. Yikes. That's Professor Daniel Freeman, clinical psychologist at the University of Oxford, talking about paranoia with Colmo Mungon this morning. Daniel's book is called Paranoia, A Journey into Extreme Distrust and Anxiety, and it's published by William Collins. Margaret O'Leary took a court case against a bar that refused to serve her, and she won. Margaret recounted why she felt she had to take the case to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. You know, we were at an event um, with, um, in the council office for um, yeah. the Cahirlux Awards and we had a celebration in the evening time from about 7 to 9 okay. in the council chambers in Dunnery, right down. Right. And then a group had decided to go to Witherspoons. Yeah. 
uh, I stayed behind because I was helping Mary Hannigan uh, clean up and just having a chat about my previous experience with her. She was the Minister of Education That's right. years she ago did, when yeah. I kind of went through my education things. Well done. Yeah. And so I, the group left and I was kind of the last to go over to Bittersweet, which was about 10 minutes after. And I went in, I was chatting and then I went to the bar and the guy just looked at me and just said like, no, <laughs> he wasn't serving me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, here we go. You know, I kind of knew yeah. instantly, like, you know, because I, I abused this kind of behaviour. And then he just said, no, he said, I, no, he said, you eat too much drink, he said. And I was like, oh my God, like, um, now I would have had one or two glasses of wine yeah, in the yeah. chamber offices. Um, but the, the council office wouldn't be that generous of wine, if you get me, so yeah, there would yeah, have been no yeah. more than that, you know, okay. that kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and then I was like, can I speak to the manager? He was very rude and he was very abrupt. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew, I was like, don't do this tonight, I said, you know, because I was, I, a lot of important company that I would have walked with and, you know, it was a respectful evening. It was the highlight of yeah. uh, the Southside Travellers Director getting an award for the work that she does. But, yeah, brilliant. Um, the Traveller Advocacy and all that. So, because um, I went into that pub as a complete equal, Mm-hmm. Um, but my head held high, proud of who I was at the traveller. Um, and then the manager came out and he was like, no, I'm not serving you, he said. And I was like, sweet cheese. So I went over to the table and I was like, you're not serving me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, I was mortified. So oh, my God. But I kind of, it, it was kind of good in a way for some of the people that I was with mm-hmm. that wouldn't have observed this because they actually could see that it was blatant discrimination because I wasn't yeah. drunk. Yes, I wasn't yes. under the influence of alcohol. But this is kind of the excuse that the publicans are using because it's happening every day. That we put mm-hmm. travellers, unfortunately, going into certain services and they're saying that it's because on the liquor licence, if you say you're drunk, they have that kind of entitlement to do that. And how long, but, Margaret, how long had he had he seen you, met you, stood in front of you before he declared that you were drunk? As soon as I walked up, he just okay. gave me... A look, and okay. like, if any traveller that's actually even listening to this radio, or anyone that's been discriminated yeah. in in their whole lifetime, or even a person that senses fear from fear from somebody, I knew that he recognised me as a traveller. I just knew by the look in his eyes, okay. and there was not. He just looked. He said, "Not tonight." He says, "I'm not serving you." And I was like, "Oh my God, please don't do this tonight of all nights." Like, do you know what I mean? And had he even? And, but when he when he dec- made this declaration, Margaret, to you, had he even heard you speak? He, if what he would have done, he would have heard me calling across to my friend who, because she, she told me to buy around the drink to the table. That's the only, like, interaction. Yeah, he yeah. would have heard me talking in, in my traveller language, the gammon. Okay. Um, you know, because she was like... Brilliant, brilliant language. Um, so he would have heard mm. the language, you know, that kind of thing. And the judge said um, yesterday, uh, listening to Margaret in the box and the evidence, uh, the, the judge uh, said, Judge Nicola Jane Andrews, um, Margaret is identifiable as a member of the travelling community and she's proud of her accent as she should be. That's what the, that's what the judge uh, said. Mm-hmm. So when did you decide, because it is a big decision, Margaret, in terms of stress and worry and even money, when did you decide I'm not leaving it, I'm not leaving it at this? I, I didn't I did know something. The night I was in it, I, I tell you now, I was mortified. I, I left it. The whole group decided well, we're not staying here. And while we did continue to another establishment and we had a lovely evening and the whole lot, it, it, it kind of dampened the whole traveller prize yeah. part of the evening that we kind of had. Now, there was other recipients getting the awards. There was other people from different organisations and clubs. But this is the first time a traveller 
uh, from the organisation Geraldine Dunn that would have received this mm. prestigious award from Mary Hannigan as Kirhirlach and Dunleary wrote down and so the next day I was like like Mary a lot of people got in contact with me they heard about it and I was like no I can't let this go because mm-hmm. the simple reason is it was such a prestigious event and I thought I'm sick of being refused entry because of who I am as a traveller I'm sick of going and fighting for discrimination and fighting for travellers rights going back to education and then when I can't access the basic services that, that mm. the other people in, in society does it. So, and then I was kind of embarrassed because it's not that of embarrassment about me and this as well because yeah. it, was, it was humiliating, but I had a lot of support with the people that was in the group of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, there, was, there was a lot of sisters wouldn't take on the cases. There's a lot of people don't take on these cases. Mm-hmm. And that's why publicans are kind of getting away with uh, okay. discrimination in a lot of cases. Um, but I, I know Kay... Um, Towards sisters there in Cork, um, I would have known Kay there for, from past, so I got in contact with their sister down there and I explained the case and it was delighted to take on the case. Um, Mary was actually the sister who was um, the parent of the family of Towards sisters down there. Okay. And she's like, no, she, so she was actually very supportive. It was actually hard to actually get a sister, okay. even in Dublin, even in the locality, to actually take on this. Uh, and even though, yeah. and you, have, you had, for example, Mary Hannafin, who was Cahirlock, former government minister, mm. TD for many long years. Yeah. Uh, mm. Mary Hannafin, uh, she she testified that you that you were not drunk. Uh, even yeah. even to have to do that is is an awful uh, an awful thing to have to do. Um, and then a retired guard has said, absolutely not. You know that? And yeah, then yeah. the the pub retaliated or re- replied by saying, um, oh. Um, we, other travellers got drink that night, but apparently they, they're they're I think it was one or two, but they're run by not such a, but they they drink yeah. that they said were, were ordered by other people, so to speak, yeah. in a round. There would have been one round of drinks bought, and that, yeah. and it would have been some person, so they never wouldn't have gone up there to that. Um, and and I should, probably shouldn't even say this. Uh, I don't know if I should say it or not, but okay. I was more like I wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be an establishment I'd regularly go to anyhow. It would be yeah, finished. that's fair enough. That's yeah. quite perfect. perfect. Like, I just wouldn't be. But, um, but don't give up. Mary Hannibal was a great support. She wrote into that uh, soon, the next day. Okay. She wrote the local TV. JP was very supportive to me. And the only thing, that, it's a pro and cons because it happens every day, Joe. And if you don't have these kind of people to support you and yeah, the whole witness yeah, for you, yeah. it's very hard to get these cases across the line. And it's not that. Witherspoons was adamant that they, they, they brought this like to the courts that they got me a bunch mm. of I like, didn't mean like, how you, had, you felt you had it. to go. The only way you could uh, vindicate your good name was to go to court yeah. because Weatherspoons yeah. weren't willing to apologise. Joe Duffy talking to Margaret O'Leary, who won her case against Weatherspoons on this afternoon's Live Line. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, what better way to start your weekend than with a baked potato? Okay, I can think of a few better ways, but. It's not about me, is it? Chef Ollie Dalton joined Colm Mungon in studio this morning to talk about how to get the perfect baked spud every time. Why do you think the baked potato is has such wide appeal? I think the beauty of it, first of all, is you put it in the oven and kind of forget about it. And I'm a big fan of like low maintenance food, low maintenance dinners. It's very filling. You've got the carbs, carb heavy, but then toppings allow a lot of room for, you know, potentially vegetables, if that's your thing, which it's not really my thing, but, you know, it could be, you know, nutritionally. Protein, all that jazz. But yeah, it's the kind of thing, wrap it in tinfoil, 
I mean controversially maybe some people don't do that put it in the oven forget about it 40 minutes later it's like oh yeah was I doing something was I making dinner oh yeah that potato is ready you know what I mean it's it's a low maintenance yeah you can go off and, and do something and if, if people have suggested topics you can text us to 51551 and we'll run them past the chef expert for, for a grimace uh, <laughs> of disgust or a thumbs up of approval on that so Let's start from the basics. Mm. A, a big spud, I take it, but the prep, the temperature, yeah. what do you do to get it ready? Okay, like some people are going to mess around a lot with this. I've seen people put it on salt. I've seen people rub it with oil. You're wasting your time as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes mm. people like just looks like you're jazzing it up for kind of no reason. For me, okay, first of all, rooster potato, you know. You know, it's it's Ireland, so rooster potato. Are there other kinds of potatoes? potatoes there are? Of course there are. There's Maris Piper. There's all these other ones. Rooster. Rooster gal. I'm a rooster gal. We're going to use roosters. Prick it with a fork, okay? I didn't prick it with the fork and I've had potatoes explode in my face and I'm not being dramatic. Or they explode in the oven and then you've got a huge mess on your hands. Prick your potato, put it in the oven at 180 to 200. 180 is good. It's kind of like a little bit lower. 200, you could... 180 fan, is it? 180 fan. Yes. I mean, who doesn't have a fan oven? No I judgment. Know, just, just but asking. like people... I've no, I can't remember the last time I saw an oven that didn't have a fan. No judgment if you don't have a fan oven, but you know. Uh, or, of course, of my course. beloved, my yes. true love, the air fryer. Of course, if you want to put in the air fryer. I'm an air fryer person. Which, which will remind you with a helpful ding when it's finished. Love it. And you might even have two drawers. You could have some toppings going, crisping up some bacon in the second drawer if Steady. you don't like it. Yeah, 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 could could do. Um, okay, there's kind of two things. You can wrap it in tin foil. Um, some people are really into that. Then you're going to get a nice kind of fluffy potato. And then if you're, you know, really bothered, you could unwrap it for the last 10 minutes. So you're going to crisp it up on the outside a little bit. You don't have to unwrap it. But if you're a big fan of the crispy skin, you're going to want to unwrap it. I generally don't, to be honest. I'm not really bothered. You're not a crispy skin fan. I mean... You can have the crispy skin, uh, you know, and the potato still going to be fluffy on the inside. The only thing you don't want, if you overdo it, if you go too long in the oven with no tin foil, you kind of get this little gap between the skin and the potato and it gets very dry and unpleasant right. and we don't want that. Well, I, I have to, I put my cards on the table here and say mm. I am a crispy skin person and mm. the ultimate baked potato is the one done in its own skin in the embers of a fire so you get a hard shell. Okay, notions. The embers of, the embers, embers of a fire. Embers of a fire. I was a 12-year-old pyromaniac. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> there had to be some payoff or pretext for lighting the fires. It's but great anyway. if you have a barbecue, actually. I know we're not quite there yet weather-wise, but throwing them on the coals of a barbecue, I, I often do that, especially with sweet potatoes, and it really, really works. It kind of caramelises a little bit, with like a, uh, burns a little bit, but also genuinely does caramelise, and it's lovely stuff. So keep that in mind for summer. Right, you're very dismissive of the oil and salt, I have to say. Yeah, I, I, I have done this in the past. Okay. A light smearing of olive oil, a mm. crunch of a bit of sea salt. Mm. You think it's, it's just placebo, is it? I think, I think it is placebo. It's like, you know when you see someone make a steak and they throw a little rosemary in the pan and just like lads come on is that really making a difference um, I think most of your seasonings are going to go on after the fact you know you're going to be cutting open your potato if you want to scoop it out and add stuff in grand but I'm a big fan of just you know little cross in the top and load on your toppings then I really don't think the salt and the little sprinkle of oil is going to make any difference but you know the way if you crack salt on on cooked chicken it'll crisp up the skin or possibly on, on duck so it doesn't work the same way in a potato in your view does well, it? Well in that instance yeah it's like drawing out the moisture but I think if you like if you're making mashed potato I always put the potatoes on salt because it does draw out the moisture and you definitely want that for mashed potato but you don't want to draw out too much moisture for your baked potato you know what I mean you want it to be fluffy on the inside you don't want it to be too dry so I wouldn't put it on salt and like I, I think that's that's kind of placebo effect Okay this this item might actually be the most contentious debate of the entire programme because we get uh, <laughs> we have a, a already contact from a listener oh. that says OMG an abomination never wrap a baked potato no. highest oven heat 
bed of salt, no, no piercing. No. You've hurt my ears. No, 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 no. I can't say no enough times. I mean, first of all, you have to you have to prick it with a fork because it can, <laughs> it can explode. I'm not joking. I have had potatoes blow up in my face, and if you if you have it too high, it's going to be too dry. I mean, that rhymed. It genuinely wasn't intentional, but it's going to be too okay. dry. We've been infiltrated by the potato liberation front. Who wants to who want to cause uh, explosions? So. Let, let's go to the inside. We've, we've done mm. enough on the skin. Yeah. The fluffy inside mm. uh, that people want from a baked potato. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, toppings wise, is that is that what you're, you want me to go into toppings? Well, it would, so, but just give us the test for somebody who's never baked a potato oh, okay. before. What's the what's the test to, to let them know your, your potato? There should be ready? no resistance. Um, if you're going to be pricking it with a fork or anything, there should be no resistance. Um, that is like a key indicator. There's nothing worse when it's underdone, especially if you kind of, you get too full of yourself and you're like, oh, it's been in there for half an hour. It's probably done. And you take it out and you cut into it and it's still raw. I mean, there's, there is nothing worse. So there should be no resistance. You're going to put it in a fork. I have this like cake tester thing that I got that is genuinely invaluable. It's super sharp and it, you just kind of give it a wipe and put it back on there. Maybe that's not the most hygienic thing ever, but it's very handy. No resistance and it most likely it, it will be fluffy. If you see the skin is starting to kind of get very wrinkly and come away from the potato. Get it out. Get it out. Okay. You're maybe even a little bit too late there. Okay, another contribution. Roosters certainly never ever wrap in silver foil. Cut across or just a wedge out of it while damp, sprinkle with salt. There's your crispy skin column. After that, simply a ton of butter. I think the foil thing though, okay, I am saying wrap in foil. I'm also saying take the foil off a few minutes before. If you wrap in foil, it's going to be super fluffy because it's going to steam essentially. Um, and then you can kind of take it off 10 minutes at the end. Okay. Yeah. I, I think we've brokered a piece here between mm. the opposing sides. Mm, mm, Some foil, yeah. but remove at the end. Huge there we progress. Go. Okay, piece yeah. has broken out in the great potato debate. Thank goodness for that. Chef Holly Dalton and host Colm O'Mungon reaching an uneasy truce over how to cook a baked potato this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio app. I'll be back with another catch-up collection on Tuesday. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck.